Chapter Eleven of Gold by Stuart Edward White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I make twenty-five dollars. We talked the situation over thoroughly and then turned in, having lost our chance to see the sights. Beneath us, and in the tent next door, went on a tremendous row of talking, laughing, and singing that for a little while prevented me from falling asleep. But the last month had done wonders for me in that way, and shortly I dropped off. Hours later I awakened, shivering with cold, to find the moonlight pouring into the room, and the bunks all occupied. My blanket had disappeared, which accounted for my dreams of icebergs. Looking carefully over the sleeping forms, I discerned several with two blankets and an equal number with none. At first I felt inclined to raise a row, then thought better of it. By careful manipulation, I abstracted two good blankets from the most unprotected of my neighbors, wrapped them tightly about me, and so slept soundly. We went downstairs and out into the sweetest of mornings. The sun was bright, the sky clear and blue. The wind had not yet risen. Balmy warmth showered down through every particle of the air. I had felt some May days like this back on our old farm. Somehow they were associated in my mind with Sunday mornings and the drawling, lazy clucking of hens. Only here there were no hens, and if it was Sunday morning, which it might have been, nobody knew it. The majority of the citizens had not yet appeared, but a handful of the poorer Chinese and a sprinkling of others crossed the plaza. The doors of the gambling places were all wide open to the air. Across the square, a number of small boys were throwing dust into the air. Johnny, with his usual sympathy for children, naturally gravitated in their direction. He returned after a few moments, his eyes wide. Do you know what they're doing? he demanded. We said politely that we did not. They're panning for gold. What of it? I asked, after a moment's pause since Johnny seemed to expect some astonishment. Boys are imitative, little monkeys. Yes, but they're getting it, insisted Johnny. What, cried Talbot, you're crazy, panning gold here in the streets. It's absurd. It's not absurd. Come and see. We crossed the plaza. Two small Americans and a Mexican youth were scooping the surface earth into the palms of their hands and blowing it out again in a slantwise stream. When it was all gone, they examined eagerly their hands. Four others working in partnership had spread a small sheet. They threw their handfuls of earth into the air, all the while fanning vigorously with their hats. The breeze thus engendered puffed away the light dust, leaving only the heavier pieces to fall on the canvas. Among these the urchins searched eagerly and carefully, their heads close together. Every moment or so, one of them would wet a forefinger to pick up carefully a speck of something, which he would then transfer to an old buckskin sack. As we approached, they looked up and nodded to Johnny in a friendly fashion. They were eager, alert, precocious gamins of the street type, and how they had come to California I could not tell you. Probably as cabin boys on some of the hundreds of vessels in the harbor. 
"'What are you getting, boys?' asked Talbot after a moment. "'Gold, of course,' answered one of them. "'Let's see it.' The boy with the buckskin sack held it open for our inspection, but did not relax his grip on it. The bottom of the bag was thickly gilded with light glittering yellow particles. "'It looks like gold,' I said incredulously. "'It is gold,' replied the boy with some impatience. "'Anyway, it buys things.' We looked at each other. Gold diggings right in the streets of San Francisco, murmured Yank. I should think you'd find it easier later in the day when the wind came up, suggested Talbot. Of course, and let some other kids jump our claim while we were waiting, grunted one of the busy miners. How much do you get out of it? Good days, we make as high as three or four dollars. I'm afraid the diggings are hardly rich enough to tempt us, observed Talbot. But isn't that the most extraordinary performance? I had no notion. We returned slowly to the hotel, marveling. Yesterday, we had been laughing at the gullibility of one of our fellow travelers who had believed the tale of a wily ship's agent to the effect that it was possible to live aboard the ship and do the mining within reach ashore at odd hours of daylight. Now that tale did not sound so wild although of course we realized that the gold must occur in very small quantities. Otherwise, somebody besides small boys would be at it. As a matter of fact, though we did not find it out until very much later, the soil of San Francisco is not auriferous at all. The boys were engaged in working the morning sweepings from the bars and gambling houses, which the lavish and reckless handling of gold had liberally impregnated. In some of the mining towns nearer the source of supply, I have known of from one hundred to three hundred dollars a month being thus blown from the sweepings of a bar. We ate a frugal breakfast and separated on the agreed business of the day. Yank started out for the waterfront to make inquiries as to ways of getting to the mines. Talbot set off at a businesslike pace for the hotel, as though he knew fully what he was about. Johnny wandered rather aimlessly to the east, and I as aimlessly to the west. It took me just one hour to discover that I could get all of any kind of work that any dozen men could do, at wages so high that at first I had to ask over and over again to make sure I had heard aright. Only none of them would bring me in $220 by evening. The further I looked into that proposition, the more absurd, of course, I saw it to be. I could earn from 20 to $50 by plain day labor at some jobs. Or I could get fabulous salaries by the month or year, but that was different. After determining this to my satisfaction, I came to the sensible conclusion that I would make what I could. The first thing that caught my eye after I had come to this decision was a wagon drawn by four mules coming down the street at a sucking walk. The sight did not oppress me particularly, but every storekeeper came out from his shop and every passerby stopped to look with respect as the outfit wallowed along. It was driven by a very large, grave, blonde man with a twinkle in his eye. That's John A. McGlynn, said a man next my elbow. Who's he? I asked. The man looked at me in astonishment. 
Don't you know who John McGlynn is? he demanded. When did you get here? Last night. Oh, well, John has the only American wagon in town. Brought it out from New York in pieces and put it together himself. Broke four wild California mules to drag her. He's a wonder. I could not then see quite how this exploit made him such a wonder. But on a sudden inspiration, I splashed out through the mud and climbed into the wagon. McGlynn looked back at me. Freighting, he said, is twenty dollars a ton, and at that rate it'll cost you about thirty dollars, you dirty hippopotamus. These ain't no safe movers, these mules. Unmoved, I clambered up beside him. I want a job, said I, for today only. Do you now? Can you give me one? I can, maybe. And do you understand the inner aspirations of mules, maybe? I was brought up on a farm. And the principles of elementary navigation by dead reckoning? I looked at him blankly. I mean mud holes, he explained. Can you keep out of them? I can try. He pulled up the team, handed me the reins, and clambered over the wheel. You're hired. At six o'clock I'll find you and pay you off. You get twenty-five dollars. What am I to do? You go to the shore, and you rustle about whenever you see anything that looks like freight. And you look at it, and when you see anything marked with a diamond and an H inside of it, you pile it on and take it up to Howard Mellon and Company. And if you can't lift it, then leave it for another trip. And bully rag those skin flints at H.M. and Company to send a man down to help you. And if you don't know where they live, find out. And if you bog the mules down, I'll skin you alive, big as you are. And anyway, you're a fool to be working in this place for twenty-five dollars a day, which is one reason I'm so glad to find you just now. What's that, John? inquired a cool, abused voice. McGlynn and I looked around. A tall, perfectly dressed figure stood on the sidewalk, surveying us quizzically. This was a smooth-shaven man of perhaps thirty-five years of age, grave-faced, clean-cut, with an air of rather ponderous, slow dignity, that nevertheless became his style very well. He was dressed in tall, white hat, a white-winged collar, a black stock, a long-tailed blue coat with gilt buttons, an embroidered white waistcoat, dapper buff trousers, and varnished boots. He carried a polished cane and wore several heavy pieces of gold jewelry a watch fob, a scarf-pin, and the like. His movements were leisurely, his voice low. It seemed to me, then, that somehow the perfection of his appointments and the calm deliberation of his movement made him more incongruous and remarkable than did the most bizarre whims of the miners. "'Is it yourself, Judge Gervin?' replied McGinn. "'I'm just telling this young man that he can't have the job of driving my little California canaries for but one day because I've hired a fine lawyer from the East at two hundred and seventy-five a month to drive my mules for me. You have done well, Judge Gervin, in his grave, courteous tones, for the whole business of a lawyer is to know how to manage mules and asses so as to make them pay. I drove to the beach and speedily charged my wagon with as large a load as prudence advised me. The firm of Howard Millen and Company 
proved to have quarters in a frame shack on what is now montgomery street it was only a short haul but a muddy one nearly opposite their store a new wharf was pushing its way out into the bay i could see why this and other firms clung so tenaciously to their locations on the rivers of bottomless mud in preference to moving up into the drier part of town i enjoyed my day hugely my eminent position on the driver's seat eminent both actually and figuratively gave me a fine opportunity to see the sights and to enjoy the homage men seemed inclined to accord the only wagon in town the feel of warm air was most grateful such difficulties as offered served merely to add zest to the job at noon i ate some pilot bread and a can of sardines bought from my employers about two o'clock the wind came up from the sea and the air filled with the hurrying clouds of dust in my journeys back and forth i had been particularly struck by the bold rocky hill that shut off the view toward the north atop this hill had been rigged a two-armed semaphore which one of the clerks told me was used to signal the sight of ships coming in the golden gate the arms were variously arranged according to the rig or kind of vessel every man every urchin every chinaman even knew the meaning of these various signals a year later i was attending a theatrical performance in the jenny lynn theatre on the plaza in the course of the play an actor rushed on frantically holding his arms outstretched in a particularly wooden fashion and uttering the lines what means this my lord a side-wheel steamer piped up a boy's voice from the gallery well about three o'clock of this afternoon as i was about delivering my fifth load of goods i happened to look up just as the semaphore arms hovered on the rise it seemed that every man on the street must have been looking in the same direction for instantly a great shout went up a side-wheel steamer the oregon at once the streets were alive with men hurrying from all directions toward the black rocks at the foot of telegraph hill where it seems the steamer's boats were expected to land flags were run up on all sides firearms were let off a warship in the harbor broke out her bunting and fired a salute the decks of the steamer as she swept into view were black with men her yards were gay with color uptown some devoted soul was ringing a bell turning it away over and over to judge by the sounds i pulled up my mules and watched the vessel swing down through the ranks of the shipping and come to anchor we had beaten our comrades by a day at five o'clock a small boy boarded me you're to drive the mules up to mcglynn's and unhitch them and leave them said he i'll show you the way where's mcglynn i asked he's getting his mail we drove to a corral and three well-pitched tents down in the southern edge of town here a sluggish stream lost its way in a swamp of green hummocky grass i turned out the mules in the corral and hung up the harness mcglynn says you're to go to the post office and he'll pay you there my guide instructed me the post office 
proved to be a low adobe one-story building with the narrow veranda typical of its kind a line of men extended from its door and down the street as far as the eye could reach some of them had brought stools or boxes and were comfortably reading scraps of paper i walked down the line a dozen from the front i saw johnny standing this surprised me for i knew he could not expect any mail by this steamer before i had reached him he had finished talking to a stranger and had yielded his place hello he greeted me how are you getting on so so i replied i'm looking for a man who owes me twenty-five dollars well he's here said johnny confidently everybody in town is here we found mcglynn in line about a block down the street when he saw me coming he pulled his fat buckskin bag from his breeches pocket opened its mouth and shook a quantity of its contents by guess into the palm of his hand there you are said he that's near enough i'm a pretty good guesser i hope you took care of the mules all right you ought to you're from a farm i fixed them and the mud how many times did you get stuck not at all he looked at me with surprise would you think of that now said he you must have loaded her light i did did you get all the goods over yes well i'll acknowledge you're a judgmatical young man and if you want a job with me i'll let that lawyer go i spoke to the judge about he handed it to me didn't he he laughed heartily no well you're right a man's a fool to work for anyone but himself where's your bag haven't any how do you carry your dust haven't any i forgot you're a tenderfoot of course he opened his buckskin sack with his teeth and poured back the gold from the palm of his hand then he searched for a moment in all his pockets and produced a most peculiar chunk of gold metal it was nearly as thick as it was wide shaped roughly into an octagon and stamped with initials this he handed to me it's about a fifty dollar slug said he you can get it weighed give me the change next time you see me but i may leave for the mines tomorrow i objected then leave the change with jim reckett of the el dorado how do you know i'll leave it i asked curiously i don't replied mcglynn bluntly but if you'd need twenty-five dollars worse than you do a decent conscience then john a mcglynn isn't the man to deny you johnny and i left for the hotel i didn't know you expected any mail said i i don't but i thought i saw you in line oh yes when i saw the mail sacks it struck me that there might be quite a crowd so i came up as quickly as i could and got in line there were a number before me but i got a place pretty well up in front sold the place for five dollars and only had to stand there about an hour at that good head i admired i'd never have thought of it how have you gotten on pretty rotten confessed johnny i tried all morning to find a decent opportunity to do something or deal in something and then i got mad and plunged in for odd jobs i've been a regular errand boy i made two dollars carried a man's bag up from the ship how much all told fifteen i suppose you got your pile that twenty-five you saw me get is the size of it johnny brightened 
we moved up closer in a new intimacy and sense of comradeship over delinquency. It relieved both to feel that the other two had failed. To enter the plaza, we had to pass one of the larger of the gambling places. I'm going in there, said Johnny suddenly. He swung through the open doors, and I followed him. The place was comparatively deserted, owing probably to the distribution of mail. We had a full space to look about us, and I was never more astonished in my life. The outside of the building was rough and unfinished as a barn, having nothing but size to attract or recommend. The interior was the height of lavish luxury. A polished mahogany bar ran down one side, backed by huge gilt-framed mirrors, before which were pyramided fine glasses and bottles of liquor. The rest of the wall space was thickly hung with more plate mirrors, dozens of well-executed oil paintings, and strips of tapestry. At one end was a small raised stage on which lolled half a dozen darkies with banjos and tambourines. The floor was covered with a thick velvet carpet. Easy chairs, some of them leather upholstered, stood about in every available corner. Heavy chandeliers of glass, with hundreds of dangling crystals and prisms, hung from the ceiling. The gambling tables, a half a dozen in number, were arranged in the open floor space in the center. Altogether, it was a most astounding contrast in its sheer luxury and gorgeous furnishings to the crudity of the town. I became acutely conscious of my muddy boots, my old clothes, my unkept hair, my red shirt, and the armament strapped about my waist. A relaxed, subdued air of idleness pervaded the place. The gamblers lounged back of their tables, sleepy-eyed and listless. On tall stools, their lookouts yawned behind papers. One of these was a woman, young, pretty, most attractive, in the soft, flaring, flouncy costume of that period. A small group of men stood at the bar. One of the barkeepers was mixing drinks, pouring the liquid at arm's length from one tumbler to another in a long, parabolic curve, and without spilling a drop. Only one table was doing business, and that with only three players. Johnny pushed rapidly toward this table, and I, a little diffidently, followed. The game was roulette. Johnny and the dealer evidently recognized each other, for a flash of the eye passed between them, but they gave no other sign. Johnny studied the board a moment, then laid twenty-two dollars in coin on one of the numbers. The other players laid out small bags of gold dust. The wheel spun, and the ball rolled. Two of the men lost. Their dust was emptied into a drawer beneath the table, and the bags tossed back to them. The third had won. The dealer deftly estimated the weight of his bet, lifting it in the flat of his left hand, then spun several gold pieces toward the winner. He seemed quite satisfied. The gambler stacked a roll of twenty-dollar pieces, added one to them, and thrust them at Johnny. I had not realized that the astounding luck of winning off a single number had befallen him. Ten to one, two hundred and twenty dollars, he muttered to me. The other three players were laying their bets for the next turn of the wheel. 
Johnny swept the gold pieces into his pocket and laid back the original stake even. He lost. Thereupon, he promptly arose and left the building. End of chapter 11